Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this bonus episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between four fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Four friends, did you say, Dan? Did you say four? Like the Fantastic Four? I did. That's because we are being joined in this special episode by two friends, or, you know, we think they're our friends. Maybe they're frenemies. I don't know. Uh, to discuss Marvel and Sony's new film, Spider-Man Homecoming. Awesome. I uh, can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Woo. Uh, well, first up, you know, this is uh, he is no stranger to the Amazing Spider-Talk, although he might be a stranger to the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. He's the person who runs the Ultimate Spin podcast and is our resident Miles Morales expert of experts. It's none other than Brian Jacobs. Brian, say hey something. What's up, guys? Hey, now. Hey, now. <laughs> well, <laughs> next up, we've got uh, the reviewer, Stat Buster Extraordinaire, from SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. It's the man, the clone, the later revealed to not be a clone. It's Kane Winstead. Hey, guys. How's it going? Awesome. Great to have you on the show, finally, Kane. Good to be here. And you review you what for us? Uh, what don't I review? Let's see. Uh, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, Amazing Spider-Man, Renew Your Vows, and Spider-Man Deadpool. Lots of, lots of reviews. Lots of them. <laughs> and two of those books are still moder- moderately relevant. Yes. <laughs> but you can guess which two. <laughs> well, uh, today we're all gathered here because we want to talk about this awesome new film, Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, I think probably everybody that's listening to this has already seen it, but I want to throw out a warning out there. We're going to be talking heavy, deep, all the spoilers for Spider-Man Homecoming so if you haven't seen the movie, I can't urge you more not to listen to this show until you've seen the movie. Does anybody want to back me up on that? I mean, I haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm probably just going to put you guys on mute. It's going to be great. <laughs> all, all I know is Rosebud is the vulture sled, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's get into it then. Spoiler warning is up. Let's go through everybody here and find out. Tell me what you thought about the film, where you saw the film, any stories about seeing the film. So let's start with you, Brian. Uh, give us some some thoughts on Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming um, was just what I needed. Without getting too into it, um, I definitely needed a break from life. So I had planned ahead and took the day off, took opening day off. And I got tickets at uh, one of those fancy dining theaters where you can reserve your seat and they bring you food and all that kind of stuff. I went to a matinee and had a blast. It was it was uh, it was a great time. And I'm sure we're going to get into the details of it. But that's my little context for how I saw it. Where does uh, Spider-Man Homecoming sit for you in uh, the, the Spider-Man movie oeuvre? Right now and having only seen it once, I would place it just behind Spider-Man 2. Great. All right, Kane, what about you? I uh, saw it at a theater, like a lot of people do. It was it was an enjoyable experience. I mean, uh, I, I definitely went into it a little a little fatigued on just the whole like 
superhero Marvel movie kind of uh, thing, but I came out of it. I, I, I enjoyed it. And where, where does it sit for you in this oeuvre? It's so difficult to really compare it to the other ones, but uh, I, would, I would put it below Spider-Man 1 and 2, above all the others. Great. That seems like a pretty uh, commonly held uh, feeling about it. All right, Mark, we're on to you now. Uh, how'd you see the film? What'd you think of it? Uh, just some general thoughts. Yeah, well, uh, I didn't actually get to see it until the Monday after it released, uh, which uh, earned me a lot of scorn and uh, mocks, mockery from some uh, co-workers and friends of mine who figured like that I was going to call out of work sick on that Friday. Kind of like what you did, Brian. Well, I don't know if you call that <laughs> right. sick. but No, I took, uh, I took a vacation day. I did it right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I, I you know, was was hoping to get to see it that weekend with my wife. It didn't materialize, so I just went by myself Monday evening uh, after it came out. I enjoyed a slice of pizza beforehand. Uh, it was very good pizza. Yeah, I'm just setting the mood. Um, uh, and then Papa Jonas pizza. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. You know, <laughs> only Papa Jonas pizza, especially in New York here. And you know, I, I Dan, Dan, like the second I got out of the theater, you know, wanted me to like text him my thoughts and stuff like that. So um, as I said to him that night, and I'll, I'll reaffirm, I, I, I do kind of wish I saw it again to get a really solid opinion. But, you know, after seeing it once and now being a few weeks removed from it, I would say that I I really liked it. I didn't love it as much as I hoped I would. Um, I, I felt that, you know, it was kind of two movies in a lot of ways, one that was pretty cool, but not great. And the other that was really great. Um, so with that in mind, I, I, I definitely rank it behind Spider-Man 2 and I would, you know, Raimi Spider-Man 2 and I would probably put it on par with the first Raimi Spider-Man. Very cool. And then, and, and then ahead of the other ones, obviously, because <laughs> who doesn't who doesn't put it ahead of the other ones? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure right now the three Spider-Man 3 fans are like like hopping up and down mad. I like yeah. a lot of elements in Spider-Man 3. I think it's a little underrated. I mean, there are so many elements in the movie, like you're bound to enjoy at least some of them. That's uh, a very true statement. Um, this as, is true. As for me, uh, I saw it opening night with my wife and uh, in my Scarlet Spider hoodie and outfit, uh, <laughs> which uh, I was hoping to get like a real fan of the comics to kind of like point it out to me. And uh, nobody, nobody said anything, but there were a bunch of people in the theater who all dressed up as Spidey, so that was kind of fun. Uh, I, I texted Mark after I saw the movie. I think I texted him you one word, Mark, which was dude, period. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you also forgot that you're three hours behind me, so dude, period, came in at around like 3 a.m. New York time. <laughs> So Mark was happy about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. You should mute, definitely mute your phone at night. I, I, I do. But I, as it, I, I woke up in the middle of the night to go pee and I saw it and I was like, what's the spider he doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take your spider tinkle. Yeah. <laughs> I love this movie in a way that I think I really, truly appreciated the second time that I saw it. Um, has anybody else here seen it a second time? I, I actually watched it last night oh. again. So wonderful. Um, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, all of the kind of themes and ideas in this movie really clicked the second time I saw it. But the first time 
I was just shocked by it. I mean, it's so... I called it uh, in a piece that I wrote, uh, Spider-Man via remix culture, because it, it really takes a little bit from everything and just mixes it up in a brand new way in stew that I think there's some Spider-Man purists that might have some more problems with it. But um, as its own creation, I think it's the best Marvel Cinematic Universe film yet. But I still think I would put it behind Spider-Man 2, but not because of quality, mostly just because of um, uh, like my preference for what I like Spider-Man to be. But I do think it has a better script than Spider-Man 2. But we can talk about that in a bit. Anybody want to get, like, let, let's talk about things we really liked about the movie before we get into really discussing some of the more controversial aspects of it. Um, like, things you liked, things you didn't like that contributed to your overall opinion. Anyone want to start, highlight something they really enjoyed? I'm just going to jump straight in and say that Michael Keaton was amazing. Like, am, am I am I alone in that? Or, like, he, he made the movie for me even more, than, more so than Tom Holland did. Well, if we're going to get straight into spoilers, uh, I, I agree with you, and I think the best scene in the entire film is the car ride scene. Oh, my. Like, like just even even oh, watching no. it the second time, white knuckle the whole time. Like, oh. Uh. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the tensest things, I think, we've seen in any Marvel movie. And, and you know, that's even with the understanding that it's a Spider-Man movie, so, of course, you know that Spider-Man is going to succeed one way or another. But, like, that scene... I mean, first of all, the reveal just completely floored me, but also beyond that, just the the way Keaton conveyed that that that, that performance was just like it, the tension was just off the charts for me. Yeah, I like Loki as a villain, but this is the first villain that I felt like I could relate to in some regard, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit in regards to is this guy a great Spidey villain, but it was the first villain that I felt like was genuinely threatening, like that actually provided conflict and a real serious like threat to our main character in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. And I think to, that Kane is pointing this out is really appropriate. Is this felt like a movie with actual stakes for once uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Am I the only one that thinks that's like a rare thing in this universe? No, you're not. And I think a lot of that for me, uh, and bearing in mind, I've only seen it once, but that comes down to Tom Holland's performance. I mean, got, I got this, too, in, in his Civil War appearance, too. It's like, how many movies have there been now? And this is the first time we really get the perspective of what this whole crazy superhero experience is like for a kid. And he sold me on the fact that, I mean, he's... He's a little bit older. I think he's in his early 20s. But he sold me on the fact as a or on the idea that Peter is a 15 or 16 year old and just all those that that level of innocence and everything. And then being challenged like that, like, yeah, it definitely feels like the stakes are higher. And he's I got the sense of a character who's in over their head and being brave about it. But also, like, you you worry for him. And if we're if we're jumping around that scene where he's buried under the rubble which is, uh, of course, the homage to that incredible moment uh, in Spider-Man comics history. When he's panicking and freaking out, that, I mean, the whole theater was, like, you could hear a pin drop. Like, people were, it was legitimately a, a freaky moment. Like, you, you felt scared for him. It was like, he was the, the panic in his, uh, his performance is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely authentic. And, and, and just, like, kind of playing to 
things that we that I liked about this movie, you know, say say what you will about whether the vision is quote right or wrong or however whatever adjectives you want to use for that. Like this this movie had a very clear vision for all of its key principal characters and it was consistent and it stuck it throughout. And I don't think you could say that about a lot of the Marvel movies as well, outside of maybe like the first Iron Man, um, you know, just where, yeah, Winter Soldier. Well, I'm talking from like a character standpoint. I mean, Winter Soldier, I feel was very riveting in terms of its narrative, but like in terms of just really having a clear idea about who all these characters were and what their objectives were. Like, I felt like this movie really nailed it in that respect. Uh, there was no, um, great gray areas in terms of who these characters were. I think that really comes down to this script and how tight and efficient the script is. And there are six screenwriters on this movie. I don't know if you guys noticed that when the credits were coming up, but that's normally like the kiss of death on like a studio film like this and that it came together to be so tight. I mean, there's not a wasted extra character. I mean, everybody has a memorable line. I I saw people complaining that Michelle has such like a limited role on the screen. She could just be removed. I would not want her to be removed. She might have like a dozen lines, but all of them are memorable and really fleshed out the character for me. Uh, Like I can't wait to return to see more of Peter's supporting cast. Yeah. I mean, when you say penis, I say Parker. Right. (laughs) How how great is that to to reimagine Flash as a bully that way, you know, just not in the physical way, but just being cruel. And I, I didn't really pick up on it the first time. I mean, maybe you got those of you guys who saw it twice. Like, did Peter seem phased by that or more annoyed? I think it's more of an annoyance. Um, right. I actually r- read today that there was a deleted scene where Peter gets like a revenge on Flash. Mm-hmm. Um Beyond destroying his car, <laughs> uh, which is a wonderful moment. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was my takeaway. But even, I mean, just reimagining Flash or reimagining all the characters, I love the the casting for this. I mean, not for nothing, but this really felt like a school in Queens with just the range of looks that people had. I mean, and it was, and it was such a not, it was just a matter of fact thing as far as the the script handled. I mean, that's you're in Queens, you get people from all different types of backgrounds and whatever. And I, and I loved seeing that. It was really refreshing. I mean, it was an incredibly uh, diverse cast and that was, that was great to see on screen. Well, speaking of reimagining things, which I think this movie is almost an entire reimagining of Spider-Man to some regard. Um, You know, it begs the question, you know, how much should a movie like this that's based on a comic that has millions of fans who are passionate about it, how much do you feel like a movie should respect the source material being the comics, the TV shows, whatever, and and in what context? Like, like what is the movie owed to the source material and staying faithful to the source material? You know, for me, it's funny. It's like... There is definitely like if I could get my wishes granted, there would be a certain version of Spider-Man that we would see on the big screen that would 
borrow heavily from comics and you know for what it's worth i don't feel that we truly have seen that version in any of the cinematic uh series that we've that we've gotten so far with that said to answer this question i don't really think the the studio you know needs needs to respect it at all i think they just need to be consistent in their vision and 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 you know like if this is what they want these characters to be then 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 build these characters and build the story around these characters and 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 be consistent about it uh you know it's this is it's a different audience it's a different universe you know that's 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 the whole thing about art here i mean like i don't feel that it needs to you know, to me, it needs to be, you know, it should be executing the best film they possibly can do. And if they feel that they need to change some characteristics or some storyline elements dramatically, like, you know, make Aunt May a cougar or uh, <laughs> or have you're really Peter... hung up on that, Mark. Well, come oh, on. Oh, I am. I am, too. Who is not hung up on that? Okay? I'm sorry. Would you say you larb this change? <laughs> As the kids say, Aunt Bay. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, you know, I'm throwing the gauntlet down on that. I, I really, I mean... Trust me, like as as a hardcore Spider-Man fan, I would love to see something that just took, you know, the Dick Lee issues and put them on the screen. But I know we're not going to get that. And, you know, for me, I just want to see someone be consistent in how they want to do it. I I, I don't want to be sitting there, you know, using my comic books as a crib sheet about, well, nope, they didn't do that. So X, you know what I mean? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that, Mark. I, I think that's that's the joy of experiencing the story in different mediums. I mean, I was a kid. I was a huge fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and that story has been a book. It's been a radio show, a TV show, movies, comics, a video game, and it all starts from the same basic beginning plot points and then spins off into different directions. And each one has their pros and cons, and you know they, they work in different ways. And for me, it, that's that's enjoyable. Like I like having the opportunity to discover something new and definitely with this, this movie or any, any of these, uh, superhero movies, like, yeah, I've got the comics if I want to read them and I've read them. It's, it's fun to see the little winks and nods, but I like to go on a, on a slightly different journey. How about you, Kane? I think your, your take on the idea of it being like Spider-Man via remix culture is a really strong, like that's a strong take as, and I feel like that's kind of what we got here. Uh, I, I felt like personally that there weren't too many stories that they borrowed wholesale from like the, the previous Spider-Man movies. So like, as far as how, how should a move like, should, should the movies like, you know, respect the source material or really draw from them? Um, I, I think, to an extent, they, they shouldn't completely remove themselves. Otherwise, we end up with things like the short-lived M- MTV Spider-Man TV uh, show, which was bizarre. Uh, and I, I, <laughs> I feel it was, like, was really, really removed from, from what the Spider-Man character was. So I feel like the movies themselves should look to the comic books 
for inspiration or, or maybe like notes, but as far as needing like a, a slavish like devotion, you know, plot point to plot point, then you know, I, I think this movie proves that it's not really something you have to do to make a successful comic book adaptation. For me, it's like I just want to see Peter like presented on screen in a way that I can recognize him as the character of Peter Parker, whatever that is. Uh, right. as we discussed on our last podcast. Um, but I feel like I'll know him when I see him. And I felt like I saw him here. And I liked the film to explore the themes that made Spider-Man comics uh, worth exploring. And it, you know, typically revolving around responsibility and choice and consequence and youth to a certain regard. And I felt like that was all here. But what made this film so fun for me was that it wasn't slavish to the comics. I could still, you know, find 40-odd things in it that were, like, call-outs to comics that I was tickled by. But a shock like the Vulture reveal would never have happened if, it, you know, it, it relied on the comics. And I would never have been surprised by it. That I can go and see a Spider-Man movie and be genuinely floored... I think is to the benefit of this film. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of play on this a little more, I mean, you know, the only reason why I feel like we're even having this conversation vis-a-vis this movie is because of just how pop-culturally popular Spider-Man is, how beloved the character is, because, like, I think, you know, if you look at the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, probably the most critically successful movies are the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and quite frankly, those are nothing like the comics, or at least the comics that preceded it. I mean, I feel Marvel's in recent years have kind of written those characters to be more like the big screen iterations. But I mean, you know, like because of the fact that they were these like considered deep cut characters, whatever, it just gave the, those movie teams carte blanche to just make the movie they want to make. And I feel like you could say that's what happened here with spider-man they made the spider-man movie that they wanted to make and you know the people who are quibbling about it you know are are people like us i'm not saying you know like that we're quibbling but you know people who have been reading these stories for years and years and have certain attachments to certain storylines or certain elements and feel like this needs to be there like this as so or it's wrong and i just you know you can look to other franchises and it's not wrong because you just don't know the source material as well. So like, you know, and that to me is I think hypocritical and unfair. Well, so let's talk about like one of the biggest changes here. Like, you know, I found this, you know, this article came out saying that like director John Watts didn't know if there was an uncle Ben or if uncle Ben had died. And obviously in civil war, there was some, hints that Uncle Ben may have been around and Peter may have learned the lesson of great power and great responsibility. And I think the fact that that's never said in this movie is a really interesting thing for Marvel looking to, you know, bring this character to the screen for the first time. But in a way, I imagine they were kind of backed into a corner where they knew people didn't want to see the origin again. So we get no mention of Uncle Ben. Um, And I don't want to speculate on future movies and whether Uncle Ben will make an appearance there. Uh, But I'm curious what you guys felt about – because, I mean, it's a big exclusion. Um, 
how do you feel like can we get a Spider-Man movie without even the idea of Uncle Ben or even the idea of the guilt over Uncle Ben's death? D- did you feel like something was missing? I mean, I felt like this movie was the replacement of that that character like twist where instead of we instead of seeing Peter learning that you know from Uncle Ben's death he has to be responsible, it's uh, you know all, all the 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 wanton like damage that he causes trying to apprehend the vulture and then kind of all culminating with when the building falls on top of him and he realizes that he has not been true to himself or, you know, whatever that voiceover was supposed to, you know, signify within himself, uh, the, the Tony Stark voiceover while, while he's lifting uh, the building. I, I feel like the, we didn't miss anything by not having uncle Ben die again. I agree. It almost seems like this, it was becoming this written narrative requirement. Like you got it. It was going through the motions in the, in right. the, in the previous movies. And it's like, once it's done, you have like him down a little bit and then he and Aunt May will grieve after the funeral and then life has to go on. And it's not like that moment is being hammered home necessarily in the films. Like that's his inspiration. Like it's once it's done, it, the, you know, even Spider-Man, the first Raimi film, it just kind of moves on. And so here, like, I I like the fact that there's just the implication that there's the in, like the inference something happened and we don't necessarily maybe need to know. Like, I, I I find it kind of refreshing a little bit that you have a little room as an audience member to kind of engage with the material and sort of fill in the blanks yourself. So if you know that story, then, yeah, we know what happened. But if you don't, if you're just going to the movies and you see this, it's like, oh, man, something really kind of rattled him or something happened, and that's why he does what he does. And then I think that what was clever about this movie was how it worked around the other part of the origin movie is the hero sort of figuring out their powers. So if you had Iron Man, you know, with the suit and trying to learn how to fly in it, or Doctor Strange being trained by the Ancient One, I thought it was great what they did here. Like, he gets this super high-tech suit, and he doesn't quite know how it works. And he overrides it before he's supposed to and gets into all kinds of hijinks because it doesn't things don't work as smoothly. So I didn't really need to see another montage of, like, trying to fire a web and it not working or, like, I can stick to walls. And I'm like, we know all that. Like, this was a this was a great way to to kind of refresh that. You know, again, for me, it, it's, it's, it's separating what I would want to see personally as a fan versus what actually worked in the context of this movie. And, and, you know, to the, to the first point, you know, not that I need to see uncle Ben or even hear the words with great power comes also must also come great responsibility. Although that was the, the third chapter in my book, Dan. So that's how much I valued that expression in the Spider-Man <laughs> mythos. It, it's, you know, I, in terms of how I like to see Peter Parker, I, 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 I do prefer a more kind of guilt, guilty Peter. Like I, I, I like that kind of personal struggle and I felt, you know, this is kind of what I mentioned earlier. And when I was giving like my very, very, very general review about the movie kind of being two parts for me, you know, I felt the, the, the first half to two thirds of the movie, there was very little personal 
struggle for Peter. I mean, he, he was learning on the go and, and figuring things out and you knew that something was up with him, but like you really didn't start to see him kind of question himself and question his, his ability to do, to do this and to continue on as Spider-Man until the second half when things became more personal for him with the Michael Keaton vulture reveal and other factors, you know, in that context, like, I feel like because that was missing from the first half of the movie or not as strong, at least from my perspective, that was part of what, what made it kind of not exactly click for me. So that's why, you know, I'm not saying it needs uncle Ben or the floating heads of guilt, but I, 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 you know, in terms of the kind of Peter, I like to see, I, I wanted to see more of how Peter kind of deals with that guilt and responsibility regardless. So, you know, I don't know if I'm making total sense here, but I'm just saying that, you know, I feel like it was a stronger note in the second half and even without uncle Ben. So it can be done. It's just, I don't know if that was consistent enough across the board for me. I, I get what you're saying. I, I think, again, I think it was just done a little bit differently in terms of guilt, just questioning his ability to, to be the best person that he can be. And to me, that was with the whole connection with Tony Stark, because in civil war, he's blown away that his hero has come to his apartment and is offering him this, this opportunity. And then it's like, not just, no, not your, not, I'm not giving you a scholarship or an internship or whatever. Like, I want you to be the hero that you are and come join us in this, you know, uh, cause we have to stop Captain America. It's this whole crazy thing. And that's where this movie picks up and he's earned the respect of his hero. And so much so that Tony Stark, grants him this upgrade. Like, here's this suit. I believe in you. Go do your thing. You know, you need anything, you let me know. And Peter lets him down. And then, you know, after the whole Staten Island ferry, like it gets away, you know, he, he's trying to do something. It gets away from him. Iron Man has to come save him. And he's like, give me the suit back. You've let me down. You've completely disappointed me. That to me was like that moment of like failure and then trying to sort of climb back up. It really is right. like a s stealthy origin story. It really is. I, it was so such a refreshing way to do it. Right. But the moment you're describing is the moment for me where the where the thematic elements of the of everything started to, to click and turn for me. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, but that's the thing. I feel like, you know, the front end of it was there was just too much kind of, you know, that that our kind of arrogance, but not like more like, you know, teen, teen arrogance, <laughs> which mm -hmm. I guess is part of the character as Dan and I discussed on this podcast, uh, you know, in our most recent episode, I mean, Peter is just kind of this mess of contradictions in a lot of ways. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I wanted, I, I guess I wanted to see a little bit more of like that kind of turning point from jump street. And I, I don't know if we saw that in this. Mm. It's hard to accept that he's not Spider-Man yet, despite having the costume. But he really isn't Spider-Man until he declares himself Spider-Man and lifts that rubble over his head. You know, he's a kid in another guy's Lamborghini. He's driving it around town recklessly um like my my one of my favorite things i noticed you know the second time through and i i'm sure i saw it the first time but uh when he goes to bust the uh the criminals that are robbing the atm he takes a moment before busting them to like pose himself and lean up against 
the wall kind of awkwardly. And it <laughs> right. really shows you like where he is like in his mindset in that moment is it's all just like a game for him. You know, like he wants it to be as showy as possible and he's just kind of having fun without really thinking through, you know, like the ramifications of his actions, which, you know, eventually ends up destroying the, you know, the deli on the corner. And thankfully he saves that cat because I was about to have a heart attack. <laughs> but um, that to me was like everything I needed to know about who this character, you know, was in that moment. And, but, so, but it's hard. I, I agree with you, Mark. Like it's hard to kind of make that, like for me at least it was difficult to make that connection because he was wearing the costume. Like he had already declared himself Spider-Man. Um, but like, I just loved seeing him have to earn it, you know, like for real, um, in this movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's wearing the costume and, and he's essentially being a superhero, but like the way you describe that moment and you're right, it's a great moment. Uh, that says a lot about the character. It's kind of the equivalent of Spider-Man going on Ed Sullivan in Amazing Fantasy 15. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I mean, and he's in costume there, but he's not actively being a hero yet. And that's kind of, it's an easier line to draw in terms of where the character is at. Whereas here, it's kind of jumping back and forth over that line where, you know, he's clearly not ready to take on that responsibility yet. He hasn't learned that lesson yet. But he's more or less doing it anyway, which is kind of weird. And he's still the protagonist. You know, like you want to root for his success. And that to me is, I think, what makes this film so smart is that um, my favorite moment in all of like the Spider-Man movies, maybe not all the Spider-Man movies, but one of my favorite moments is in Spider-Man 1, which is not a movie I love. But there's a sequence in it that's brilliant, and it was Ron Friends who actually pointed this out to me, is that, and I maybe you remember it from my interview with him, um, was that in the moment where Peter lets the burglar go in the first movie, you root for Peter in that moment. You're like, screw you, burglar. You know, and, and if you're someone like you know us who knows that story, you're like, oh, no, this is going to go badly. But if you're not one of those people like us... You, uh, those people, uh, if you're not like us and know that's where that story is going, you genuinely are rooting for him. You're like, yeah, that guy was a jerk. You don't know the repercussions of it. And throughout this entire movie for like at least the first two thirds, and maybe it's that you're a smart viewer, Mark, but for me, like, you know, I'm rooting for Peter despite the damage that he's doing and despite the arrogance that he's showing. And I don't really realize it. You know, like a teenager does, like where a teenager does things thinking they're doing the right thing, only to realize that they weren't really like thinking 10 steps down the line. I was the same way watching this movie, rooting for Peter, not realizing how much he was screwing up. Hey, Kane, you mentioned up front, like when you went into this, you were sort of feeling a bit fatigued with superhero movies. And I'm just wondering, like the way they approach this, you know, this version of an origin story or a debut story, did that, did that have an effect on like how you connected with it? Like, was it, was it yeah, a good I, thing for you? I, th- I think it was, I think it was a good thing because they did a lot of world building, particular, particularly with his, his uh, relationships with his classmates. Um, there, there wasn't so much heavy exposition, you, you know, and, and retreading, 
kind of the same beats. Uh, you know, I, I think I think we we've kind of hit hit the notes here in uh, talking about it, but so much of the Spider-Man origin story is retold in this movie, but in a completely different way. So, like, you know, instead of showing up on the Ed Sullivan show or, or, you know, doing masked wrestling, he is kind of going through the motions and almost playing like as if he's Tony Stark rather than, than taking it seriously or, or, or thinking about that, you know, the, uh, the consequences. I, I, I kept expecting something to happen regarding to like how much collateral damage he was accruing while he was trying to chase after uh, Shocker number one. It was just it was so different than how we normally see a first superhero movie. But the more I think about it, the more the more I, I can see the same beats just told with a really clever twist. By the way, how great was that? Uh, now you're the Shocker moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shocker can never get a break. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of enemies, let's talk about the uh, the vulture here a little bit because it's really interesting. You know, they even give Michael Keaton one of the Goblin's famous uh, lines. He says "end of the line" in this movie with a green light on his face, and the oh. vulture is very similar to the Goblin in a lot of ways. Um, you know, mainly being that it's a personal relationship to Peter. Um, how important do you guys think it is that, like, I mean, this is the 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 next big Spider-Man franchise, and we're again repeating this personal enemy thing. How important was that to you? I think you know for this movie that he have a personal enemy. It seems like the, this idea of of a personal you know connection with with the villain is something that a lot of these Spider-Man movies really try to key in on, like. People talk about Spider-Man 2, you know, how great a villain Doc Ock was in that because he has that personal connection with Peter and they have like a father-son role, you know, at some point. So it really does seem like at least, you know, in, in, in the way the characters portrayed in the movie that this really close and interconnected, um, you know, uh, web so to speak, uh, you know, of relationships between Spider-Man and his villains is something that uh, is is appealing. Like, I mean, um, Green Goblin is, you know, in the comics, arguably, you know, the the the, the greatest, the great Spider-Man villain, and it's it's not necessarily just because he threw Gwen Stacy off a bridge. It's it's because of how personal the the conflict is because he's harry's father and you know peter's best friend and so the the i I think i think it was smart and uh that they they took that with the vulture and and made it like you know you you get when peter goes to pick up liz from the prom she gets that double whammy of like not only my, my meeting you know my my crush's dad but he's a super villain and I'm too inexperienced to really know how to play it cool. Right. I mean, but the thing is, you can make the case that throughout the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, the most effective villains that they've had are the ones with a personal relationship. Obviously, Loki and Thor. For people who watch Netflix, you know, um, 
Kilgrave and Jessica Jones. I mean, you know, those, I mean, to me, those, those are the standout villains so far in the MCU. And I would add Vulture to that list. I mean, with that said, I think it's even more important in a Spider-Man context because, you know, he is the friendly neighborhood hero. It's a smaller, more intimate scale of superheroing, if that's a term. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, again, because if you're going to compare it to the comics, I mean, the best Spider-Man villains are the ones with, with a personal story and connection to Peter, whether it's, you know, the the most personal, like with Norman Osborn, but then also kind of, you know, like something that's analogous, like a Doc Ock or, you know, even to a lesser degree, like the Vulture from the comics or Electro from the comics, uh, Venom, of course, Um you know, I feel like those are all kind of standout villains because they kind of either stand in contrast from, a, you know, power and responsibility or, you know, they they're they could be you could view them through the lens of this is what Spider-Man could have been if he went rogue instead of deciding to go down the path of good. Um, so, you know, in this context, I feel that adding that twist with with the vulture was kind of critical because for the most part you know it seems like the character you know the villain's beef was more with tony stark not you know spider-man was just a nuisance getting in the way and it wasn't until he realized how close to the you know into his circle he was that the stakes just all of a sudden got amped up i think it's a triple whammy too because like you said, uh, the vulture stands as a reflection of Peter's interpretation of responsibility. My other like favorite moment in the film is when Peter like goes to confront him and says, "Like, why are you doing this to Liz?" And he says, "No, I'm doing this for Liz." You know, and, and then Peter has to state, "Like, I know that stealing is wrong." You know, um, but it's a real like in the early pages of Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Man even thinks about this. Like, what if I use my powers to steal and help out Aunt May, you know, and 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 the vulture is like a, a very solid reflection of that. And also a great reflection of kind of like modern politics in the kind of downtrodden worker uh, who needs to take it back from the government. But uh we could uh, say it. He's a he's a Trump voter. There's no way around. But <laughs> well, he had a very like Walter White kind of like backstory and motivation. Yes, definitely. Yeah, but I, I mean, like I, like I said, I I think those moments are so powerful because like you, you might not get this phrase power and responsibility, but that's l- exactly what they're talking about. And he's sympathetic in his own unique way. I mean, he's terrifying, but I mean. Because of, like you said, you know, he's he he has incentive. He has a cause. And, you know, in his mind, he is doing the right thing. And I mean, you know, this is not just relevant to Spider-Man villains, but any villain. I mean, that it's you know, if you can if you can align yourself, if you can put yourself in that headspace and align yourself with that character, regardless of how nefarious his actions might be, that's an effective villain. And and I feel like we got that here. Yeah, and he's got a very specific moral code, too. Like, he says, you saved my daughter. I will let you go this one time. You know? And, and, and we see that reflected again in the, in the post-credits where Spider-Man saves his life. 
from the wreckage, and then he doesn't tell Mac Gargan, you know, that he knows his identity. There's like a kind of like borderline morality to this guy. Yeah. Or you could say that he was embarrassed that he got beat by a kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's that too. Um, I mean, but that, but that's what makes it an interesting moment because it could go, you, you can interpret it either way. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it that way. So I, now I'm going to take that with me next time I watch it. On the one hand, we have the vulture knowing his secret identity. Can we talk about the fact that in this film, Peter has a best friend who knows his secret identity? Yeah, I don't know how we have not talked about Ned yet. Or not, <laughs> not Ganky. Not, oh, yeah, not, not Ganky. <laughs> and his amazing, uh, the, the funniest laugh line in the film of I'm watching porn. <laughs> <laughs> what a great cover, though. Like... <laughs> I'm just imagining the meetings with the guidance counselor that we're likely to follow. <laughs> or with Captain no, I, America. <laughs> right. I mean, I appreciate that because I felt like that, you know, the, what what they had with, with and I'm, I, keep, I have to stop myself from calling him Ganky every time, but what they had there with Ned to me kind of was borrowing from like the Bendis philosophy of Ultimate, which was like, this is a, this is a stupid kid blessed with, uh, not stupid, like not intelligent, but, you know, just a kid with these extraordinary powers. Of course, you know, like the fact that so many people knew who Peter was, who Spider-Man was in ultimate became like a running joke by the end of it. You know what I mean? It was like, who didn't know who he was under the mask. And, and I felt like Bendis was very intentional about that. Like he, he, he kind of figured a kid would not be able to keep his secret either because he screwed up and, and, you know, kind of like what he did here, he, you know, wasn't paying attention or, or whatever. Um, you know, I think with, with, the Lee Dicko stuff. I mean, I think they were a little too um, unrealistic about Peter's ability to keep that secret from everybody forever. <laughs> Speaking of the moment where Ned discovers Peter's identity, I, I wanted to talk about this, but I didn't really know the avenue to do so. So I'm going to do it now. There's a moment that they try to like, they like, you can see the filmmakers setting up like a gay panic joke where Peter takes his costume off and is nearly nude in the room with Ned when Aunt May walks in. And mm -hmm. you're just – I mean, at least I felt like my audience and myself was waiting for the comment from Aunt May. Um, and it just never came. And I loved that. I loved Aunt May that is it, too cool for that, though. But it didn't go <laughs> for the cheap, dumb, awful joke. It like – yeah, Aunt no, May I is just you. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, was, I was expecting it, and then, and then it didn't happen. And then and – then, I was kind of wondering, like, well, then, what was what, like, why, why set the scene up like that? It was, it was a little, it was a little puzzling to me. I'm not saying I was disappointed or anything, but it was, it was puzzling on like a, a composition level. I just found it pleasantly subversive, and I'm sure there's somewhere on the cutting room floor, Aunt May making some kind of joke about it. But like, it was a definite decision to not include it, and. I mean, I just want to say hats off to that because I think it would have been a really cheap, easy joke. And the statement is stronger by not doing it. Right. But back to Ned as a character. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I love this character, and I agree with Mark. Like, it's unrealistic that he would be able to keep the secret. But I think Ned adds something, and I think Karen, the AI in the suit, 
add something that like we couldn't really get in the other Spider-Man films, which is like, and we get a lot in the comics, which is like Peter's internal monologue and narration of how he's thinking through things, and right. with someone for him to play off of, it allows us to keep Peter engaged and telling us what he's thinking throughout these scenes. Spot on. It worked really well, and I, I was. I was trying to rack my brain, like, is that a reference to something? Should I, has Karen been used before anywhere? Or is that strictly, I didn't know if that was like a random Tony Stark AI from the, from an Iron Man book or. His AI is named Friday. Is Friday, right. I knew it was right. Friday. And then I think there might've even been Pepper in the comics too. Yeah. I've never been able to place the name Karen, but the, yeah. the, the kind of like joke of it all is that it's Jennifer Connelly's voice. Yes. <laughs> married to Paul Bettany, so that's the kind of joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did the did the the Iron Spider or whatever they ended up calling the the Secret War suit, did, did that I can't remember, did that one have an AI voice? Or like like a from from the comics uh Civil from, War. Oh, from Civil War? Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't think it did. Yeah, I don't think it did either. I mean that, that that's the only place where I, I could think of that, you know. Spider-Man would have like an AI voice would be like in that costume, but they could have called uh, it I mean, Anna Maria. Uh, <laughs> that would have been perfect. <laughs> they they were clearly, if not like alluding to like the idea of Miles, at least like setting up like a Miles. So I'm just wondering, what are they going to do if they ever bring like a Miles like? Is Genki going to end up being the Hobgoblin? I, I don't know. But like, <laughs> He's not the Hobgoblin. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess Miles could also have a friend. I, I, I guess, but like the, the I, I mean, I, I know this is, this is, this is speculating on something that's, you know, years out from happening or whatever it does. But like, I, I, I just wonder why, why, why call him Ned? Why why not just go you know full tilt and just call him Genki? Because it's not like they can use Genki as he is in the comic now in in a future movie. I wonder if yeah. there's some weird legalese around that. Right, like I mean, you know, we know we all know that this movie was you know an act of of God, you know, via via lawyers between Marvel and Sony. So it's it's definitely possible. Bendis, though, when we when we spoke to him, was genuinely surprised to see that character in the trailer and was tactful as he could be to say, well, you know, he found it flattering. But, yeah, it was just weird. That's so funny to me, because, like, if anybody I imagine would be a consultant on this movie, it's Brian Michael Bendis. It's like (laughs) his movie. I I mean, it is the the ultimate Spider-Man movie in a lot of ways. And I, I saw his name, like he was acknowledged in the credits, but I didn't, I don't remember seeing him credited with a, any sort of consultant or production role. Well, on this note, Brian, I have to ask you specifically, mm-hmm. did you know about the Miles stuff going in and what was your reaction to that? I knew there was no getting away from the fact that Donald Glover was in the movie and then his character name came out. So Aaron Davis, who is Miles's uncle. So I just read that as like, oh, that's kind of like Ned Leeds. It's just a fun nod to the history of the comics, but they're not actually going to do anything with it. And then he throws out that deliberate line about having a nephew in the neighborhood. I was like, aha. And then um, even right before that, 
there's a moment where Peter asks Karen to kind of look up who these guys are. And on his sort of uh, heads up display gets a little profile of uh, Aaron Davis and it lists his alias. Um, he's listed as alias the Prowler, which is the character from the comics. And then Brian Pichelli, which I thought was a pretty nice touch. And it was cool to see Bendis and Pichelli credited uh, in the special thanks section at the end, too. So, yeah, that was for me as a Miles fan. Yeah, that was a definite kind of punch the air moment. But it was also like, again, I was feeling kind of ripped off on on Ned. Like, man, you just like Yankee. I mean, we've always said so on our show. And Bendis himself said the same thing. Like Yankee ended up kind of being this the heart and soul of that series in a lot of ways. Um, he's, he's such a great character. And so to see him just kind of lifted wholesale and shoehorned into Peter's story, I get why they did it and it works um, for the reasons we were just talking about. But I do feel uh, if miles is ever going to find his way into a live action MCU film, he, he got cheated a little bit, but we still have the uh, animated thing coming out next year. So I'm sure We'll get him realized properly there. I can't believe that that's still happening, but it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so I imagine that's your favorite reference in the film, correct? Um, yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that's that's definitely up there. What about the rest of you guys? Do you have any favorite references in the film? Well, for me, hands down, it's the commuter cometh and that whole <laughs> sequence. <laughs> just, just for sheer... Like, like never in a million. I mean, it's a it's a great story. It's considered one of the the best Spider-Man stories by some people. But never in a million years did I think we would get like in a in a mainstream Spider-Man movie. Like, not even just like Spider-Man out of his element in the suburbs, but like you know, very direct visual references. I mean, from like the kid's big wheel to shooting the web towards the tree and snatching onto nothing. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, in some instances, like a panel for panel lift. Even and the sound that, effect. Yeah. And it just brought me sheer joy because, like, it was just t- completely unexpected for me. How about you, Kane? I mean, I love the little notes he would leave. Like, the, the, just, I mean, I, I, know, I know it's not like a, like a direct reference, but, like, just, just the, like, uh, the, the very Spider-Man touch of like just leaving something webbed up with with a note saying like, "Hey, you know, is this your bike?" Or you know, I found this creepy flying guy because it, it's it's not really something that that I, I don't think we've seen in, in the previous movies, but just very very uh, indicative of kind of like the the playful aspect of, of the character. I forgot to add that one to my list. That's a really good one. Um, for me, uh, I, there were a number. Obviously, I wrote a whole article on this, but um, one of my favorite references is not even to the comics. It's the Brand Zeno reference. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I don't. So, in Amazing Spider Man, the first Amazing Spider Man movie, Peter goes to have dinner with the Stacys, which is an odd scene. Um, and they all can't stop talking about their favorite fish that they're eating, which is Branzino. Um, they make several, like, references to this. And it became this, like, weird thing after Vulture wrote an article on it about, like, what, what's up with Branzino in this film. <laughs> and um, when Flash Thompson is driving his date, uh, like, before the car gets taken by uh, Peter, uh, 
he like references that he can tell real Branzino. He knows real, <laughs> real Mediterranean food. And so he had to send it back. And it's the most obscure reference um, ever. I like gasped in the theater because I remembered that Vulture article. And I was like, I can't believe that someone remembered that. Um, like, I don't even know if the people in the cast knew what that was. Like, I, I'm sure it was just the screenwriter that was like, I'll slip Branzino in there somewhere. <laughs> um, and I, I also have to say I was super tickled by um, the scene at the Avengers, like, um, mansion or headquarters or whatever you want to call it, upstate Avengers, where the new shiny spider armor was revealed and the whole press conference thing, like, from Civil War number two. That was amazing. Did, how did your theater react to the reveal of that suit? Because my theater, both times I saw it, audibly gasped. Yeah, same. People people were very impressed. They loved it. I mean, I, I was I was too into the movie <laughs> to, to like really really gauge what was happening um, you know, around me the first time. I was I was straight up enthralled. And then when I saw it last night, it was me and my four friends. It was like the the 10:30 showing, so there wasn't really anybody there, but uh, yeah, it was it was it's an impressive suit. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm I had the wrong crowd with me for pretty much anything i mean to put it to context they um they started i had some people next to me snickering during the like the lifting the wreckage up scene when he was oh like, no out. no like, why is he freaking out i'm like oh my god you Ooh, no. like, like i'm like sitting there like starting to like like clutch clutch the the my seat because like oh my god they're gonna do master planner here this is amazing yeah. and like and like that like almost instantly took me out of the moment I'm like oh come Aww. on <laughs> how great was the split face mask in the reflection of the water loved it amazing like just even the concept that like the way they're going to pull this off is because his face is reflecting into the water lined up with the mask what a cool idea anyway yeah. Steve Dicko would be Steve Dicko would be happy. Uh, yeah, he'll, Stan, ne- he'll Stan, never see Stanley it. Stanley Lesso. Why are we only seeing half his face? It's confusing. <laughs> I, I will say the insertion of like the Tony Stark voiceover almost killed the scene for me. And that, that just might be a personal thing. I, I I hate voiceovers, especially voiceovers that like tell the audience like this is how you're supposed to feel. Like this is what. I, it's 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 so on the nose for me, um, but I mean, w- w- was I the only one? Like, w- was is, is, am I just being nitpicky at this point? Find your soulmate, Homer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it just reminds me of, <laughs> of nice. the Iron Giant. Like, I don't know if you guys like have seen it. Where like where the like the the there's a nuke and it's being launched and it's going to destroy the town and like the Iron Giant is like flying into the nuke to, to like sacrifice himself. The music swells. And then like, you get like this voiceover from the main character delivering like the, the like uh, moral of the story as the iron giant. Like this is, you know, I, I don't know. Like, like I said, it's, it's a personal thing and maybe I'm just nitpicking, but like, it's just the use of a voiceover to like drill home uh, some sort of like moral lesson is like eye rolling for me. 
And so it kind of took me out of the moment. It's funny that they went for that, you know, very obvious thing. And then they missed what I thought would have been the obvious thing where after the final battle at Coney Island, Peter didn't throw the vultures line back in his face. Like you're welcome for say, or you can thank me for saving your life or whatever. Like I was waiting for that. Right. Sort of bookend. Good. It's funny. I typically agree with you, Kane, but like the two specific ones that you referenced both worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I will forever love the iron giant. Like, I mean, it, I, I watched it all day, every day when they used to do the 24 hour marathon, but like, it's just as an adult, it's, it's too cheesy. <laughs> well, um, I want to talk about now that the movie has been out for a little while. Um, it had the second biggest drop in like attendance for any Marvel movie. Um, this for the second week that it was in theaters. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen like any marketing for this thing now, like after it came out. Um, what do you think happened there? Do you have any speculation? I mean, I'm telling everybody to go see it and I want to go see it for a third time. And are, are, is, is that uh, like a, an aberrant behavior? I know, I know a lot of my friends have had middling opinions on it. Where, you know, they say it was okay, but, you know, I'm not really like, you know, an expert in box office. So, you know, I can't really say for certain why it's dropping off other than, you know, broad strokes where, well, you know, people see it and then they they don't feel really compelled to see it a second time. And I don't, you know, I don't know how much that lines up with the rest of the Marvel movies. Like is like, I, I know this is a larger drop off than all, you know, all the others or most of the others, but like, do, do these movies like do superhero movies in general or Marvel movies have like a, a bigger drop off than perhaps like your other summer, you know, flagpole movies. I, I, I don't really know. Well, wonder woman is just rolling through the summer here, making a ton of money. Um, and, and I think deservedly so, but, um, I mean, yeah, do you guys have any, like, personal anecdotes? Do you, like, were people around you, like, somewhat hesitant about this movie, like, more than usual? Because I've gotten a number of texts from people like, oh, it's actually really good. And I'm like, yes, it actually is. Go see it. <laughs> I don't know. I think there I, – no, I mean, people in my circles all thrilled to see it, and those that finally got around to it loved it. And I wonder – part of me wonders if it's, if it's fatigue. I mean – there's like a superhero movie every other month, it seems. I mean, so I think Wonder Woman was such a smash success for a lot of reasons. Um, but of course, it got a lot of attention because it's Wonder Woman. It's a it's a female lead character. It's it was done well. Um, and it just broke a lot of new ground. And Spider-Man is synonymous with Marvel and how many Spider-Man movies have there been? And that part of me wonders if there might be kind of just an exhaustion with the character. Like, really, what is he going to do? Like, is it, you know, what is he yeah, going to do I'm, that I haven't seen before? How, there's been, what, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies? Like, that's what it might feel like to the general public. So that's that's my thinking on it. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I think it definitely has more to do with the point of how many Spider-Man movies have we already seen? Like, I, I part of me almost wonders if... You know, the reason why there was a drop off was because the the 
week one audience for this movie was kind of the peak audience in terms of these are the people who are just going to see this movie, period. Because, I mean, you know, even in, you know, talking with people who are not big comic book fans, but like to go see the movies and stuff like that, like people that I work with and stuff like that, especially when they knew that I was like working on the book, you know, kind of to coincide. They, they were people were asking me. So why are you writing a book? You know, why are they doing a book about Spider-Man now? I'm like, well, he's got a movie this summer. And they were like, again, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like that was, that was a very common response from like kind of, you know, people that would maybe like, you know, if they didn't go opening weekend, would go the second week, especially if a movie got good word of mouth. But, you know, there was definitely this sense of, of burnout and, and like, you know, kind of like to compare it to like Wonder Woman, I think, you know, that's a, it's that's a new thing. So maybe if people were hedging initially because, oh, it's DC, some of those movies haven't been as as great as the Marvel movies. But, you know, it obviously got very good reviews and good word of mouth. So, you know, OK, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll take that in. It's something different, whereas like a Batman movie at this point may not have if it got kind of not. I mean, not that Homecoming got bad reviews, but I mean, I think there was still enough people that were like, it's good, but you know what I mean? Mm, like there was, right. there was good butts, you know, where, um, <laughs> there were that, good butts. Nice. Good butts. <laughs> good with a butt. How about that? He's only 15. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you mean Tomei? I was talking about that May. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think that really has a lot to do with it. I mean, even, even more than superhero movie fatigue. Cause I like, you know, I think it's it's Spider-Man fatigue. I think people were, were kind of incredulous about the idea that they were rebooting the series a third time and that they weren't going to see it. They'll, they'll see it on Netflix. That's probably the attitude. It's funny. Like, it's very easy to get caught up in our own little world of, like, following Spider-Man and, like, this Sony deal that's been going on for years and all of that. But I met so many people that had no idea that they had recast the character or that it was a new thing. I met people that said, oh, they're doing a Spider-Man prequel. Or, you know, like, I had no idea that Andrew Garfield wasn't going to be Spider-Man anymore. Like, more people than, like, not, I found to be in this camp. So, like, it's often, like, worthwhile to pull ourselves out of a bubble and be like, oh, there are other people that are just genuinely confused by this. Absolutely. I agree 100%. (laughs) Unfortunate. It's unfortunate. I wish everyone was as obsessed as we were, but you know. <laughs> Could you imagine that twisted world? Just think of the book sales, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so let's talk about the future of the series. Obviously, we got some great teases with Mac Gargan and and that great Captain America ending, which I hope is the last post credit uh, sting, because what a way to go out. What are you guys? What are your hopes and desires for the uh, for the future of this series? I want to see the rest of May's line that uh, she got. She was strangely <laughs> cut off right before the closing credits. I don't know what was up there, but it just it just starts the next film with Uck. Yeah. <laughs> Karate Kid Two style. It's gonna be right in the parking lot after the tournament. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll go first if that's okay. I don't mean to keep jumping on everybody's. Uh, toes here. Um, no, I thought Brian's suggestion was the first go. It was real legitimate. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, excuse me. Um, you know, for me, what's kind of interesting about 
this in terms of what's going to happen next is, I mean, yeah, obviously they laid the groundwork with like Gargan and some other things, but it really still is a very blank canvas in terms of what direction could they go? Like, I know, like we've heard stuff about, would they go with Mysterio as a villain or Craven the Hunter? I mean, they, they, they have said pretty adamantly that they're not going to reuse like Goblin and Doc Ock, right? I mean, has that been pretty clearly definitively stated? Yeah, they said they're not, they're not reusing any villains you've seen on screen before. Right. Smart. Unless, unless, you know, he appears in that Venom movie, but, you know. <laughs> God help us uh, all. But, Silver um, and Black, isn't that the movie they're doing now? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, the, the Silver Sable Black Cat movie? Yeah. Oh, boy. But I, I'm legitimately intrigued about where they could go from here, and I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to see them keep building this universe. I'd like to see them expand on the universe. I mean, you know, we obviously have hints of other potential supporting characters, a certain nephew of somebody that could be involved but you know so like i'd like to see not to weigh it down in character spider-man 3 style but i mean you know we you know what let's let's get more zendaya let's get more well you know is there a gwen stacy in this universe you know what i mean like i'd like to see what they do with some of those angles i guess i think we're sufficiently prepped for the daily bugle to come back uh, yes. Spider-Man has been a menace. He's ready to be presented as a menace again. You've got the Scorpion all lined up. Uh, I think it's time for a more modern version of the Daily Bugle. I would love to see J. Jonah Jameson back. But I, uh, I mean, like, in, in his old form. Um, but I think that storyline is just ready to go. And you've got an Aunt May who knows who he is, who can defend him to the press or whatever. Like, I think, I think that's the next big story is the daily bugle versus Spider-Man. I see that movie. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I wonder who's going to move into Avengers tower. If it'll be like the bugle or uh, Osborne or, you know, with, with with the daily bugle, I I just, I wonder how relevant, you know, any kind of news outlet, like major news outlet would be to like a, a teenager what, what what if like like the the Daily Bugle is like a like a BuzzFeed like almost like the back channel? Yeah, I mean I guess the, yeah. the failing Daily Bugle. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Wait, let's get Swarm on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, yeah, it's a good point. What what would be effective to a, a teenager? I mean, I think there is still something to like. Uh, a, a news station or a, or a, some kind of internet website that is turning people against Spider-Man. But you're right. It, it does mean something more when it's like affecting teens. So yeah, <laughs> maybe Betty and Jason Ionello get a boost and they like move on from their high school broadcasting station with their faulty green screen and, <laughs> and get taken up to the next, you know, championship bracket. <laughs> It's all about like, Peter versus his like high school news channel. <laughs> like like a like a YouTube kind of like still with a terrible green screen though. Like I, I'd see that. <laughs> well, cool. Um, I, I mean, it sounds like we all like really dug the movie. There's at least a lot to talk about. But um, I want to thank Kane and Brian for coming out and joining us on the show. 
Thanks for inviting me back on. Uh, good time as always. Uh, same here. Uh, always, always glad to hop on. And thank you, listeners at home, for joining us for this special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, our next episode will probably be out in about a week or so on August 2nd. Uh, what's the title of that show? Well, we said uh, last week that it was going to be about powers, costumes, gadgets. Oh, my. Yes, we're going to be breaking down the origins, behind the scenes, and development of all of Peter's classic powers, costumes, and gadgets as presented in the Stanley Steve Ditko creative run. So that means we're not going to be talking about Karen and her, like, Tony Stark suit. Oh, my. <laughs> Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 4, number 30 by Dan Slott and Stuart Eminen. And also check out our Swarm B-Book review of Spectacular Spider-Man number one. I heard Swarm thought it was a truly buzzworthy book, Dan. That seems about accurate. More or less. Uh, <laughs> you can groan all you want. Uh, I will kill you with these. Uh, and remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you will all get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B book reviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get stuff. No, you'll get access to commissioned artwork. We promise. They'll be from artists that are famous because it's going to happen, right, Dan? Absolutely, it's going to happen. All right, All right. <laughs> Mark, you're you're expressing some, some real doubts here. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get away from this, Brian. Where can we find you on the internet this week? As always, you can find our podcast about all things Miles Morales and Spider Gwen at ultimatespinpodcast.com. You can stream or download episodes for just about every issue of those books and we've also got exclusive interviews with all the creators and all of our episodes are of course featured as well on superiorspidertalk.com which also uh is uh, home to a review i just wrote of the upcoming miles morales novel uh by jason reynolds which is awesome and i want to throw a special highlight again on that awesome bendis interview that you did well, thank you. Yeah, you can you can find that, uh, as I mentioned, on our site and on uh, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com as well. Cool. What about you, Kane? Where can we find you on the Internet? Well, you can obviously also find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, where you can read my lengthy reviews on uh, Renew Your Vows, uh, Sensational Spider-Man, and uh, Spider-Man Deadpool. You can also find me on Twitter at at Kane Writes, that's C-A-I-N-W-R-I-T-E-S, uh, where you can read about me realizing horror, realizing in horror that I've stopped watching Walker, Texas Ranger, ironically, and started watching it kind of in earnest. <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting detail. It's like I only get so many channels here at home, and <laughs> the, I, like one station plays it, at least six hours a day. So it's just, it's always on and it's, it's there. It's comforting. It's just, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> there needs to be a podcast chronicling like this downfall for you. <laughs> I mean, I am, I'm going to go and register the website right now. <laughs> Mark, where can we find you on the internet? 
I just started watching Riverdale on Netflix. Does that count as something? I mean, should I should I blog about that or should I be admitting that? I don't even know. Um, you can find me, of course, on, on Twitter at chasing ASM blog. Uh, you can find me on ChasingAmazingBlog.com, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, and, of course, order the book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And once you have a copy in your hands, if you should be so kind, leave a review and help it grow its audience. Dan, lastly, where can we find you? I just started watching Westworld, and it's blowing my mind. But I'm like a year too late, so don't spoil it for me. <laughs> um, yes, you can find me on Twitter at, at sup. Spider Talk, and like everybody else said, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com is the home for all of our goodies. And uh, that's it for me this week. Mark, I think there's a certain phrase that we are always sure to remember. What might that phrase be? Yeah, as our good friend Tony Stark used to say, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Spider Talk.